Hello? Hi, Paul. Hey, Bill Flanagan. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Oh, I'm great, thank you. That's good. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm standing up for this interview. My guest today is Bill Flanagan. He's had some very fascinating experiences and has communicated those experiences in a variety of ways. He is an author, television producer, radio personality, and was executive at MTV Networks and Viacom Music Group. Bill Flanagan produced the renowned TV series Crossroads and Storytellers. He's written for Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, Esquire, GQ, The New York Times. He's contributed essays to CBS Sunday Morning and hosts shows on Sirius XM. He also recently wrote the film, the documentary, Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President, which I recommend. He has a Jimmy Buffett songwriting credit. He's the author of several books, both nonfiction and fiction, covering everything from rock songwriters, U2, to The Three Stooges. He's authored several novels, including his fourth, which I am currently reading, the very intriguing and funny 50 in Reverse, which tells the story of 15-year-old Peter Wyatt. Peter believes he is 65 years old, having fallen asleep at his house in New York in the year 2020. Well, Bill Flanagan, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure, Paul. After an intro like that, I should probably say as little as possible. <laughs> well, this is an eclectic resume, and as I said, it's a variety of experiences you have had and continue to have. It's been an interesting life, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been. Uh, I've been very lucky. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about this book. I think a lot of people have these kind of time fantasies. How did you come up with the idea of this story of 15-year-old Peter Wyatt? Well, uh, you know, like so many people, like so many of my friends, everybody I ran this idea by had had the experience. You know, you have a dream one night that you're back in college or back in high school or back in your home when you were a kid, and you can't get out of it. You go, no, 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 I'm I'm a grown man. I'm married. I I I, I don't live in, you know, my hometown anymore. And sometimes you wake up right away and sometimes the dream goes on for a while. Well, I had one of these dreams that I just could not get out of. I was arguing with my parents that this is all a dream. And they were like, yeah, well, meantime, get dressed and go to school. I was on the school bus. <laughs> you know, I went to school and couldn't find my locker combination. And I began to worry that either I had, I was a 15-year-old kid and I had a, had some kind of mental breakdown and imagined the next 40 or 50 years of my life or else that I was just, I was just trapped in a dream that I had a stroke or a heart attack or something. And I was, you know, my, my body was, was on the way out and this was my consciousness fading. So that stayed with me for a long time. And I thought maybe it was a short story and I just kind of worked on it on my own and it kept growing and growing until it became a novel. So it's a question a lot of people ask themselves, but if you were to wake up again and say that you were, let's say you were 15 again, what would you do? Well, you know, part of the point of 15 Reverse is that you think you can do all these things, but in fact, a 15-year-old has very little agency. <laughs> you know, he, he, has, he has no money. He can't drive a car. He can't really even get a job. So he, in the story, the character is kind of endlessly frustrated. He wants to not mess up his life so he can get back to the happy life he had, so he can meet his wife and have his children. 
And at the same time, he thinks, well, gee, I could, I could write all the David Bowie songs and sell them and make a lot of money. So he's, uh, he's conflicted. And of course, of course, things don't go the way you planned. In a way, that's probably the point of the book is that no matter how much you think you know, life is still going to find a way to surprise you. <laughs> well, that that's an interesting point. I mean, when we talk about all these experiences that you've had, having worked in television, having done so many exciting things, having interviewed so many of the songwriters that the whole world cares so much about, that have influenced the world, what would you say has been the most surprising thing that has happened to you? Oh, the most surprising thing that happened to me is probably that it was possible to spend a whole life and make a living all the way through just following an interest in music, really. I mean, you know, there's some things that I've done that don't have much to do with music, but for the most part, it's the notion that rock and roll will find a job for you, even if it's not the job you wanted, which is, you know, probably guitarist in the Rolling Stones, <laughs> if you stick around. You know, I mean, one of the things that's amazing is that things like MTV and VH1 came along that weren't invented when I started. I mean, when I began doing music journalism, I kind of thought, well, maybe if I'm really lucky, I can stretch this till I'm 30. And new things kept appearing on the horizon. You know, new th new opportunities came up. I've been doing a series for Audible called Words and Music, which are, um, you know, basically books on tape where we've had everyone from St. Vincent to Sheryl Crow to Sting to Smokey Robinson to to Eddie Vedder to Billy Joe Armstrong, sort of telling the story of their life. And those have been tremendously rewarding to work on. The first one I did was called uh, Break Shot with James Taylor. And it's just been great. And, you know, I find myself thinking, well, who would have believed in 1970 that 51 years later there would still be a market for all this? In fact, a bigger market than there ever was. So whether it's TV or film or radio or new media, there's just an endless, or, or books, there's just an endless appetite for the passions I had when I was 15, 16 years old. And that's amazing to me. That's a huge surprise. Well, tell us about your early journalistic experiences writing rock and roll criticism and, and the things that you were doing. That had to have been an incredible experience to do all of that. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was sort of, you know, it was pretty improvised. When I started writing about music, it was because I wanted to write fiction. I wanted to write novels. And I thought, well, the important thing is to just, is to just write, to get published, whether it's in underground papers or alternative weeklies or, or, you know, the, the little local paper that they have at the supermarket that tells you the baseball scores and who got married this week in your town. I just wanted to write as much as I could, uh, you know, sometimes it was like for 10 or 15 of $20 for an article. But as I got going on that, there was kind of a natural selection that happened, which was that my music writing got recognized and, and my political writing and my movie reviews or my, all the other kinds of things I wrote, cause I wrote anything I could think of to, to pitch sort of fell by the wayside. And by the time I was, Oh, you know, pushing 30, I suppose, the choices I had were kind of like, you can cover the New Hampshire primary and we'll pay you $75 for an underground paper. Or you can go to Paris with Mick Jagger and we'll pay you $1,000 from a New York magazine. <laughs> so, you know, it was pretty much self-selecting. 
if they'd offered me a thousand dollars to cover the New Hampshire primary and seventy five dollars to go to Paris, well, I probably would have gone to Paris with Mick Jagger anyway. <laughs> but you know, I mean, at a certain point, rock journalism, music journalism, told me that that's what I was good at, and so I followed that. You know, I've had for some time now this book that you wrote. It's a it's a collection of rock and roll conversations that you had with different people. Right, written in my soul. Elvis Costello. Yeah, written in my soul. It's a really, really interesting book. How would you say you were able to get the kind of access that a lot of people dream of, to be able to talk to people like Bob Dylan and Mark Knopfler and all these people? Well, you know, I think probably... The main thing was that I was genuinely interested in the music. I mean, that's really what I cared about. I, I didn't, it didn't, it wasn't a strategy. I wasn't thinking I'm not going to ask them about their divorce. I'm going to ask about the, you know, third verse of this song on the second side of the 12th album. But that, that was just, that's what I cared about. That's what I was interested in. So, you know, I kind of, I kind of hit it off with a lot of musicians. I, and I suppose, you know, there was no plan to it. It was, it was a matter of, um, you know, I, I hit it off with Elvis Costello and I hit it off with Mark Knopfler and I hit it off with Sting and Bono, who were all kind of new guys coming up when I was uh, writing. And then that in turn led me to get introduced to uh, to Bob Dylan or Keith Richards or Pete Townsend or the more established stars of the times. So, and then and then it was just a matter of holding on. You know, it was just a matter of not blowing it. I find songwriters to be very fascinating and I'm curious from that list, and there's more on there. There's, you know, Paul Simon, Pete Townsend. Is there somebody that you can recall from your interviews that was the most fascinating to you? Well, you know, Pete Townsend is kind of famous for being the greatest interview. I'd say, I'd say Pete Townsend and Joni Mitchell are the two who, no matter how many times you talk to them, you really only need to come in with two or three questions because they're going to, take the ball and run with it. They're really articulate and have really thought a lot about songwriting, about the relationship between the artist and the audience, you know, and they have, and they're provocative too. They'll say things that are not what you expect or not what the um, kind of standard line is. So I'd say Townsend and Joni are probably the two most fun people to interview. I should tell the listeners out there that we met very briefly. This was, I think, 10 or 11 years ago. There was a taping of CMT Crossroads in mm -hmm. Franklin, Tennessee. And at that time, I was reading the book New Bedlam. And I thought, no oh, good. There's that guy. <laughs> and so there's uh, the guy. that taping was Jimmy Buffett and the Zach Brown Band. And Right. That was a great show. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And I'm hoping you can tell us, how did you come to meet Jimmy Buffett? You know, I think I first met Jimmy Buffett in the mid-70s when he was playing a show, I believe, at Rhode Island College. Oh, no, the University of Rhode Island. And my friends and I went because we were fans and we'd seen him before. And, you know, the thing about college shows, at least in those days, was security was usually pretty lax. So we went strolling during the opening act bit into the backstage and we we saw a big buffet. We said, hey, man, let's eat. There's nobody around. So we were stuffing our faces when Jimmy Buffett walked in and we were eating his dinner. <laughs> and we really thought we were busted. 
And he just laughed and said, come on, fellas, there's plenty for everybody. That was my first meeting with Jimmy Buffett. I don't know that he remembers it today, but I sure do. Well, that's that's kind of prophetic in some ways because you meet him, Jimmy Buffett, you're eating at his buffet, and then years later you write a song with him. You have this co-writing credit for Buffet Hotel. Well, yeah, and that was very generous of Jimmy. I was kind of surprised and tickled that he gave me a credit on the song because I didn't feel like I necessarily contributed that much to it. We took a trip with Chris Blackwell and Tom Preston, some other friends of ours, to uh, West Africa. We were in Mali, and, and we were traveling all over in the desert. And after we came back, I was I remember I was in a hotel in Los Angeles, and I was under the weather. I was feeling kind of sick. I was sick in bed. And I get an email from Jimmy saying, um, hey, I wrote a song about our trip. And I listened to it. And I wrote him back, and I said, well, it's great, but you, you leave the guys out in the desert. you got to write a last verse about coming back in. And he said, well, why don't you give it a shot? So I, you know, I wrote, I don't know, four lines or something. It wasn't very much. And sent it back to him. And he said, oh, oh great. And and I really kind of thought it would inspire him to write something of his own. I didn't really think of myself as co-writing a song with Jimmy Buffett because he had the song really written. And then when the record came out, my name was on it. So, you know, that was unexpected and, and flattering and good for my ego. But, you know, I mean, it's a little embarrassing in a way, too, because it's not like it was not exactly Lennon and McCartney sitting down to write Day in the Life together. <laughs> Do you perhaps have a story from that journey that you took to Africa? Wow. There's a lot of stories from that trip that we got to. We wanted to go to the festival in the desert which is at an oasis in the Sahara called Essekan. And that is about three hours Jeep ride from Timbuktu. So we had been in Bamako. We, I, I'll spare you all the places we went on the way. But we made our way to Timbuktu, which really is kind of the end of the world. And somebody in our group, oh, I know who it was. It was Sindhu, our, our tour guide said, I'll go down to the marketplace and ask around, find someone who knows the way to Essekan and we'll give them, you know, a hundred bucks to be our guide. So Sindhu comes back with this kind of, uh, you know, fellow right out of central casting with a, with a turban and a linen dashiki. And he says he can guide us to Essekan. So we set out in two Jeeps next morning and we were just traveling across the desert all day you know i mean it was like an hour in a sand dune now we're on a, the surface of Mars. and the sun started moving down in the sky and i said guys you know we've been traveling for like 12 hours this is supposed to be three hours away i don't think this guy knows what he's doing and we <laughs> saw some um we saw three men you know tuareg types wrapped up with the the the, the turbans around their heads at a well at a stone well with an ox and the ox was walking around the well with a pole on his back trying to pull up water and the three guys are sitting there like they've been sitting there for a thousand years and we said let's let's go over and ask those guys so we started asking you know Esakan, and they pointed over the mountains in the opposite direction from the way we were going at which point the guide we had picked up turns around and runs off into the desert 
Oh boy. And we're going, man, come back, come back. You know, you know, we're mad with you because you had no idea where we're going, but you don't want to. And he just kept running. Well, that's weird. So we turned around and we headed toward the mountains toward Estacon and we found it and we had a great time. And a year later, Sindhu, our travel, uh, the guy who traveled with us, the local guy who had found this guy, was in New York. And we were all in New York. Blackwell was in New York. Preston was in New York. Buffett was in New York. And I said, let's all go to Sardis. So we all went to Sardis and we're telling stories about the trip. And say, boy, remember that? Remember that crazy nut we picked up in Timbuktu who didn't know where we were going? <laughs> and Sindhu goes, well, fellas, look, I wasn't ever going to tell you this. But um, when we stopped and asked those guys with the ox what was going on and we were talking, they said, this man is taking you across the border into Mauritania to an Al-Qaeda camp. You know, they kidnap Westerners and hold them for hostage there and cut their heads off. Mm. And and the guys with the ox apparently said to Sindhu, we'll kill him for you if you want. And that's why the guy ran away into the desert. So... Needless to say, Jimmy and Tom and Chris and I were uh, taken aback. It was a year later, so we weren't that freaked out. But we were, we just would have been the typical idiot Westerners stumbling around in the desert going right to our to our desk. And as I said, I said, you know, Jimmy, somebody probably would have paid a million bucks to get you out of there. But I definitely would have ended up beheaded. <laughs> you delivered, Bill. That's quite a story. <laughs> Thank God you're all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It took a while to mention that to my wife. Ah, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, you know, you and Mr. Buffett, you have this shared writing experience, both of you having written fiction and nonfiction. Sure, that's true. Do you sometimes perhaps share things you've written to get feedback from him? You know, I would send Jimmy galleys of a book before it came out i wouldn't necessarily send him chapters because you know that's a big ask of somebody he's really busy he's got a lot of his own projects going and to say sort of will you read my chapters and you know make editorial notes on them would be that would be intrusive i think that would be presumptuous so no i would send him i would send him the book when it was wrapped i'd send him the book before it came out but i wouldn't ask him to do editing editing work on it or anything you know, one of one of your interesting credits, you have done these interviews with various people, but you interviewed Bob Dylan a few times, and they're some of the most interesting Bob Dylan interviews. And one of the questions you asked was about who he thought the greatest songwriters were. And he listed these different people, Randy Newman, John Prine, and he also said Jimmy Buffett. I'm curious, what were your thoughts when he answered that way? Well, that didn't surprise me too much. You know, I think I think that uh, Dylan is the foremost of our singer songwriters, and it would make sense that he would that he would focus on uh, great singer songwriters. I mean, I think all those people he mentioned are pretty much um, similar to what he does in one way or another, and also have their own unique voices. So, you know, it didn't surprise me too much. And he listed a couple of songs that he thought from Buffett that he thought were great. I think he said he went to Paris and Death of an Unpopular Poet. Yeah, I think that's right. Would you say that there are any Buffett songs that 
you feel are in that category of just absolute greatness that maybe are personal favorites of yours? Oh, gee, there's a lot. You know, Nautical Wheelers from A1A, a lot of A1A, you know. I mean, that album really staked out a unique voice at the time. I, I remember I started working in a record store in Providence around the time that album came out. And there were several Southern guys working in the store, and we really played that record all the time. And it's funny because now everything, the whole idea of the kind of Florida Key West hippie pirate drug smugglers and guys singing songs and chasing women that's become mainly because of jimmy buffett a very common trope everybody kind of knows that idea but at the time it was completely unique it sort of fell somewhere between country music and folk music and rock and roll it had you know i mean one of the main things that made jimmy buffett stand out was that he didn't take himself that seriously and he had that in common with john prine and Randy Newman, you know, they were songwriters who covered the whole range of emotion and experience. And a song like The Pirate Looks at 40 really was pretty novelistic. It really painted a very vivid picture. So, you know, I started following him then and I'd go see him in clubs in Boston and stuff. And, um, you know, the image of Jimmy Buffett changed a lot after the Parrot Heads and it became a kind of a Grateful Dead type thing. But I always think that the core of what he does is that singer-songwriter stuff. You know, The Night I Painted the Sky or something like that. Yeah, great song. I want to talk about another Jimmy for just a moment, President Jimmy Carter. I saw the film Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President, and it's a very interesting movie. I'm hoping you can tell us about what was the experience like. It has so many different interesting voices in there. Well, that was just a privilege. That was just great. My friend Mary Wharton, who is a director who I worked with a lot at VH1, we did a lot of the VH1 Legends shows together, approached me with her producer, Chris Farrell, a few years ago and said, we're thinking about doing a film about Jimmy Carter and music. And I said, you mean the Allman Brothers playing Forum and his friendship with Willie Nelson and his friendship with Dylan? And, uh, you know, and they said, yeah. And I said, well, everybody knows that stuff. And they said, no, no, actually... Nobody knows that stuff. You know that stuff. But the vast majority of people have no idea. So I was very happy to get involved, and I did most of the interviews, and I got to spend time with President Carter, and both in Plains and in Atlanta. You know, and we got everybody from Jimmy Buffett to Bob Dylan and on and on to be in the movie. So it was just a joy. It's one of the few projects I've done where I could say every step of that project was was a pleasure. I saw Willie Nelson in concert in Atlanta, and I was sitting there in the audience, and I saw Jimmy Carter walking by. And in my excited, I guess, frenzy, I said, there's Jimmy Carter. Everybody looked around at, they turned around at me and looked at me like, this kid is nuts. These kids need to stop smoking so much weed. And then during the concert, he came out. I felt so vindicated, and he sang Amazing Grace with Willie Nelson. Wow. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, well, I would think that Jimmy Carter, Atlanta, Willie Nelson, that would be a pretty natural convergence. I would expect to see Jimmy Carter at a Willie Nelson show in Atlanta. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, you know, obviously Carter is an incredibly soulful guy. I was so happy to read this weekend that President Biden went down and visited him in Plains and called on him last week because, um, you know, every president should have done that and none of the others have. Hmm. 
Can you tell us, has there been anybody, because you've been able to interview and meet so many fascinating people, as we've been mentioning here, is there anyone you have always wanted to meet that you haven't? Uh, no, I can't think of any musician <laughs> who's alive who, who I haven't met. I mean, you know, it's funny. I never met John Lennon, and I know McCartney pretty well, and, and I've interviewed George and worked with George, and I've interviewed Ringo and stuff and done shows with Ringo. And I interviewed Yoko at the Dakota just after John died. That's kind of when I was just starting to to be writing for national publications and, and getting in there. And I've often thought, you know, if John had lived, I would know him, you know, which is kind of mind-blowing. Hmm. But then there's also a part of me that thinks maybe it's just as well because I can listen to the Beatles and still have some sense of mystery about it, you know, because because I never met him. And I do know, I have known the other three guys and most of the people around them. So it, it, in a strange way, it preserves some of the magic and distance of the Beatles that I never met Lennon. So uh, I guess I wouldn't say I regret that, although it would have been nice to have shaken his hand. Hmm. Well, Bob Dylan is going to be turning 80 in just a few weeks. As I mentioned, you have interviewed him a few times. Is there a Bob Dylan song that resonates with you the most? Well, it's probably a different Bob Dylan song every every full moon. Girl from the Red River Shore is a song that really, really got inside my head and never leaves. And quite often I'll find myself just putting that on, going, all right, I, I got to think of something different to listen to. And I go, well, I really want to hear Girl from the Red River Shore. So so today I would say that. But, you know, another day it might be Visions of Johanna, and another day it might be Tears of Rage. The guy's written a lot of good songs. Oh, yeah, so many. And wouldn't you say that his mystique, his mystery factor, that's such an alluring part of, of Dylan the artist? Well, I suppose the thing is that it serves an artist well to have people be able to project all kinds of different things onto him because that way his personality does not get in the way of the song. You know, if you think you know somebody so well that you can't hear a song with an open mind, then maybe you know them too well. I mean, and often you don't. I mean, often it's just an illusion. But I suppose it's easier for people to read what they want into a Dylan song or a Bowie song than maybe it is for them to read it into, uh, oh, I don't know, who's somebody who everybody feels they know very well, uh, you know, John Denver. You know, I mean, everybody, whether they did or they didn't, you look at John Denver, he was on TV all the time. He was on talk shows. He just felt like, yeah, okay, I know I know where that guy's coming from. Whereas with Dylan, no matter how famous he is or how long he's around, there's still a sense of, well, is he this or is he that? Is is he the family man or is he the uh, rambling hobo? Is he the, <laughs> the the millionaire living in a castle or is he the uh, the guy jumping on the back of a train? He leaves it open so that you can project all different characters, and you can project yourself into the story. Hmm. Well put. So what is on the horizons? What's on the future in the world of Bill Flanagan? Well, there's always a lot of stuff. You know, there's always a lot of stuff. I'm doing my shows on Tom Petty Radio and on the Beatles channel, and we're doing more and more of these Audible originals. And um, we've got some interest from uh, some movie folks in making a film out of 50 in reverse. So, you know, there's always something going on. 
You know, while I was reading 50 in reverse, which I'm still in the process of reading, I couldn't help but think this would make a hell of a movie. Well, let's hope that's true, Paul. Let's hope that you're <laughs> right about that. <laughs> who would you see playing Peter Wyatt? You know, it's a 15-year-old kid who talks like a 65-year-old man, <laughs> so they'd have to find some actor. And anybody, I, if I see somebody in a TV show or a movie, I think, well, he'd be, he'll be too old by the time it comes <laughs> along. So somewhere there's a 13-year-old who will be right by the time they make the film. What is the best thing about being Bill Flanagan? Uh, I would say being married to Susan Flanagan. Yeah? Yeah. That, uh, you know, not to be mushy about it, but really, I really hit the jackpot. I think that whatever I did for a job, I would have had a happy life as long as I were married to Susan. Uh, very sweet. Well, I always like to end the show as an open forum which means you can go anywhere you like within reason. <laughs> but what hmm. what would you say to anybody who's tuned in with us in closing? Well, I'd say don't rush out too fast. You know, the vaccine, we've all had our shots and we're all wearing our masks and we're all really, really excited to get back to the beach and back to the mountains and back on airplanes. But Let's not blow it at the last minute. Let's not slip back. I hate to make it a public service announcement, Paul, but <laughs> that's really what I'm thinking. Well, let me ask you this then. What are you looking the most forward to? I'm looking the most forward to going up to Maine, being able to get in the car and go up to the mountains and uh, be on a lake with my family and not, you know, just basically get out of the house because, man, we've been in the house for 13 months. Mm. Well, Bill Flanagan, I look forward to reading more of your work. I'm looking forward to the next novel and the possibility of seeing this on the big screen. I have to say, when we started this interview, I had watched your interview with Charlie Rose. I had listened to your interview with Terry Gross, and that can be intimidating <laughs> to do, but you made me feel completely <laughs> comfortable. Well, Paul, you made me feel completely comfortable, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. All right, sir. Until next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Godspeed.